verse 3, chapter 1. We'll look at this paragraph 3 through 11. We'll read it, and then we'll examine it and a few other passages to go along with it. Remembering that Peter's concerned uh, for his readers, he's in a ministry of reminder as he's been shown by God that uh, his time is short. Uh, He says uh, he'll lay out precious promises as he reminds these uh, fellow believers and uh, at the same time warn them about how it is that they ought to be living. So let's begin, let's read the from 3 down to uh, 11, this uh, paragraph, confirm your calling and election is what the ESV that I have says. One sentence in the Greek language, but for us, uh, to assist us to gain a clearer understanding, we have four, five, six sentences in English, uh, but it's a long sentence in the Greek. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, So he he talks about these promises there in verse 3 and 4. what God has granted by His divine power, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And then verse 4, granted to us these precious and very great promises. And so uh, He warns, and then He warns about obedience, about living our life. We have these promises, we're assured of certain things, and yet... uh, uh, He says, don't live as if we're all good with God just because we have been saved. We need to press on. We need to, uh, he says there in verse 5, make every effort, diligently pursue, however your translation says it, 
You know, he, we, we need to remember that Jesus is our Savior, right? We also need to remember he's our Lord. And he not only saves us, but he also rules over us and he commands us. We're to submit ourselves uh, to him. Uh, you, you can't, what we can't do is come to Christ with our fingers crossed at all behind our back. I'll give you my life, except you can't come to Christ that way. You know, the night I was saved, I didn't know much. In fact, I knew nothing, almost. I knew the gospel, and that was it. And when I came, I had no idea what it meant, really, to live a Christian life and what God expected of me. I just knew that he had saved me. Uh, so it's not that you need to know what this is going to be like when you come, before you come to know Christ. It's that you come to Christ without knowingly holding anything back from him. And then as you live your life, as, as these characteristics are being built in your life, as you're growing in the knowledge uh, of the Lord Jesus and his word, you become more and more aware of what the demands of the Christian life are, what his calling is upon our life. But to come to Christ initially, you can't hold, you can't, you, you can't have it both ways. You, you, uh, you know, some liberated Christians uh, who have little concern, they enjoy the things that the Bible even clearly forbids, because their sins are forgiven. They don't understand the gospel. Maybe they're saved and they just haven't been taught. Uh, but uh, one of the commentaries, those who want to have the best of both worlds will actually have the best of neither. Yeah, you can't, you can't straddle the fence. Christ, is call, call, Christ demands you acknowledge him as the Lord of of your life. Uh, reminding Peter will eventually remind us by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. This world is being kept until the day of judgment and the ungodly will be uh, destroyed. And in 3.13, according to his promise, we're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Righteousness dwells in that future glory. Each of us face a choice. We can't, choosing one way... Uh, Choosing to live in one world means you won't dwell in the other world. You can't live in both. Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all, right? I mean, if you want to get another saying. But what Peter, what's that? Is that his quote? Okay. Um, what Peter lays out here is the... If mutual responsibility uh, that 
the Lord has to us as his people, what he does, and then what's required of us, a mutual responsibility as we live our lives on the way to our future home. Jesus makes these powerful promises. Jesus, verse 3, his divine power, so there's the power that he has granted to us. And then verse 4, he's granted to us these precious promises. And then we're called in 5 through 11, verses 5 through 11, then to add to our faith, the, the initial faith, we come to know Christ through the gift of faith as we trust in him, and we're called now to add to that faith, not on our own, cooperating with God in a sense of being sanctified, but there's a responsibility that we have that Peter is laying out uh, to add to our faith these changes in in character, if you will. Of course, it's by the power of the Spirit, but to be effective and productive as Christians, clear-sighted or, and not blind or myopic is what the word he uses. So in this second letter, uh, Peter's emphasizing the practical side of, uh, of our faith, of being a disciple today calling us to single-minded commitment um, now. And we need this proper perspective of the future so that we might live rightly now as we face what it is that we face in the world where we live. The now of the power of Jesus and the then of the promises are tied together inextricably, and he will show that there are awful consequences to uncouple. Just living for the future and not worrying about today, or just living today without thinking about the future, uncouple those instead of blending them together, and we'll get off course. We'll get off course in our life. Um, You know, I think about these groups who in the 70s and 80s and even past uh, these cults who will uh, just gather together in the commune and wait for the end of the world without worrying about how they're living day by day. And then forgetting about, not even thinking about, not even living as if Jesus would come back and just concerned about today and tomorrow. That's uncoupling the future. And so Peter here in this paragraph ties them both together and says you can't, uh, we can't uncouple them. We need to live both in the power of Christ for now as we look to the future and the promises that we have of what it, how this thing will play itself out. Again, uh, all one sentence, but he keeps them together, uh, both the present and the future. It, His divine power, well, who is His? Uh, Yeah, verse 2 is the nearest. You go back to verse 2. May the grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus, Jesus our Lord. So it's God and His divine power as we walk through this passage. That's the divine power of the Lord Jesus, right? It's a clear passage, one of the clearest statements of the deity of Jesus. 
here that he is divine, he is God. Uh, that word divine is only used three times in our New Testament. As uh, Here, verse 3, uh, is it verse 4, become partakers of the divine nature. So right here, Peter's writing to a group of folks who are being invaded by uh, false teachers. People who are not or outside the faith, coming into the church. Uh, This idea of divine, that we only find one other place, and I'll tell you in a second, is more a secular idea. It's what what the other religions, the pagan religions, the non-Christian religions, would the word they would use for their gods. And so what Peter is doing is he's taking a word that the culture knows, And he's applying it to the one true God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's setting on course the Lord Jesus as the only true God, uh, the only Savior, the only Lord and Master. But he's using a word that would be in the contemporary culture. They would understand what what the connotation is. The only other place is uh, Paul is in Athens preaching to the Greeks in, uh, in Athens, he said, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think of the divine being, that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He's preaching to pagans. He is not in a church. He's in the market square preaching to pagans and uses that idea of the divine being. Now, you guys have, remember, he sees in Athens, he walks around town, and, and he's stirred up in his soul as he sees all these uh, uh, gods, all these artifacts, all these things that are representing the Greek gods, the pantheon of gods in the Greek culture. And so he preaches to these folks using their idea of God, and he said, now, let me tell you who the real God is this divine being who commands all men everywhere to repent. And he preaches the gospel to them, beginning with language they'll understand. We need to know our audience as we talk with people. Whether it's this audience, uh, this class here, uh, I don't know everybody, and I don't know everybody's vocabulary, I don't know everybody's understanding, but we do our best to be able to speak in a way, not, not changing the message, but changing maybe the language so that we're understood as we talk back and forth. And, and so that's what Peter's doing here is he makes it known that Jesus is deity. He is God in the flesh. Uh, as he writes to these Christians who know that, but he's combating what the false teachers are teaching as they are faced Uh, as these believers, these young believers, are faced with the false teachings. Any, anything? Uh, Okay, I'm sorry, Acts 17, 29. It's the only other place that word is used than these two verses right here. Um, So he's setting up Jesus as the one true God in this culture that has many, many gods. Uh, and so what Peter is 
implying for us is doctrine matters, right? Doctrine matters. Uh, I, I, I say that because um, who is Jesus? Yeah, he is the Son of God. He's the firstborn of all creation. Creator, sustainer. Uh, he's the Lord. Alpha, Alpha and Omega. The Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Messiah. See, we need a biblical doctrine. You can't just say Jesus. I don't know who I was talking to just yesterday, maybe, or day before, where, you know, those, there's many people who will knock on the door and tell you, yeah, we believe in Jesus. You've got to get your terms defined. And when you begin to define your terms, when you begin to define what Jesus are we talking about, well, you're talking doctrine. I don't know... Uh, I don't know how it is that many Christians believe that doctrine doesn't matter. Why why do some not want to talk about doctrine? Okay, doctrine divides. And are we not very, very thankful it does? Because it divides truth from error. And it spells out for us what is wrong and what is right. It does divide but we don't be, want to be divisive in presenting doctrine, just knowing that it's going to divide on its own. You know, it's the, the offense of the gospel. The gospel is offensive to the lost, right? To the world. But we want to make sure we're not offensive in how we present the offensive gospel. What? Or confusing. Exactly. Yes. Yes. And Bruce, you want to say something? Well, he testifies the truth of error, but like in our doctrine, it brings us together. God's goal is that how can two walk together unless they agree? Okay. Yeah. So it, it unites. Yeah. It unites those who have, are, are like minded, right? And we want to be biblical minded. It's, it's, it's okay to be, uh, it's not okay necessarily to be like minded if we're minded in the wrong way. Error with error. So we want to be united together by the Word of God, Christ bringing us unit, unif, unity, but not unity at the expense of truth. Not unified just for the sake of unity. Um, you can't enter the kingdom of God believing in any version of Jesus. I know that it's been a long time now, but when Leslie Smith used to come over from England, he would never tell anybody about Jesus. It was always the Lord Jesus. He would never just leave the word Jesus bare. Uh, whether he would say the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, but he wouldn't, because where he came from in England, it, 
It didn't mean much. Everybody believed in Jesus. They're born. They're put in the church as soon as they're born through their baptism, whether they be Catholic or whether they be Anglican or wherever. And everybody knew something about church, but they didn't know Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, many of them. So those who, who fight against doctrine, every Christian every has a theology. Uh, and so the question is, is my, is your theology sound? Is it biblical? Uh, and we're always being reformed, right? We're never reformed. We're always being reformed as we mature in Christ, as the, we learn more of the Word, we learn more about ourselves. But God's Word is the only way to know if our theology is good. Not, uh, the Word of God is really not given to us to make us feel good, although as we live faithfully in Christ, we're, we're probably going to feel good. Life is going to go well. Not perfect, not free of uh, troubles and trials, but life will go well. But it's not given to us to make us feel good. Uh, it's, not, it's given to reveal the truth. But not as an intellectual journey of, of uh, increasing our... Uh, of increasing our database of biblical trivia and facts. We are always increasing in that, in the knowledge of the word. Uh, but that's not the goal. It's not an intellectual journey just to add a bunch of, uh, of things, pack our brains full. It's given that we might know God. We might know the Savior in all of their, his glory. The more we learn about God, the more we know Him, the more we learn about ourselves, and then the greater ability we'll have ultimately to love Him as we understand and know Him more. Uh, some can explain many of the doctrines, but there's no uh, penetration in their heart and into their life. We're not just trying to learn how to define, we're trying to learn how to allow the Word of God to understand it in a way that it transforms our life. Uh, we good? The Word defines who Jesus is. Uh, relationships are important. but not above the faith, the doctrines of the faith. Uh, how do we determine what a good relationship is or a bad one if we don't know the Word of God? The Word of God. And it's the power of Christ. Verse 3, the divine power. It's overwhelming power, isn't it? I mean, you, the, the word is dunamis. I was reading one commentator who says it's the, the basic word we have for dynamite. And then I read another commentator, and he says, don't ever use dynamite for the power of God. Dynamite destroys. But there's a sense in which, yes, 
It's dynamic, right? The power of God, the dunamis, the, the overwhelming power of God. Thank goodness it is that powerful. Uh, the power, it's an overwhelming power. Supernatural, it's the supernatural work of God in our hearts and in our souls. That's what regeneration is, isn't it? We're born again. You had a brick in your chest, in your heart. And the Lord God took that by his supernatural power. Okay, a good destruction. Okay, there we go. But it's a supernatural work only God can do. If you're a believer in Christ, if you're inclined toward the things of God, at some point in your life, you may be able to pinpoint the moment. And you may not. But at some point in your life, God breathes new life into your soul. Right? By His supernatural power. At some point that happened, you were dead. Your heart was cold, it was black, and God removed it and replaced it with a new heart. And that didn't happen because you were tired of your old life. You may have been tired of your old life apart from Christ. It didn't happen because you had some external inspiration. You know, the sun rose up while you were fishing on your boat. And you were inspired, and so you got saved. Um, Maybe you were inspired by the sunrise. We can see the invisible attributes of God, but that can't change our heart. Uh, Yes, an inside job. Um, Your circumstances didn't get so bad, so you went to Jesus. Your circumstances may have gotten horrible, and that may have been a part of the means that God used to bring you to Christ, but the supernatural divine power brought you to Christ, made you want Him, otherwise you still would not want Him. So that's the gospel, right? Um, It's a touch of the Master's hand. Some of you know that song. I don't know, Wayne Watson. A lot of people have sung it. Uh, it Yeah, by the violin. Till the maestro touched the violin, it was a piece of junk. The touch of the master's hand, the work of the Holy Spirit, or Ezekiel. God says to Ezekiel to preach to the people, I'll give you a new heart, a new spirit put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and he implanted deep in our souls. And with that came this knowledge. Verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Verse 3, His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. There's this knowledge that God gives At your conversion, you have this foundational knowledge of God. Verse 8 also mentions it. 
For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a base, if you will, base knowledge that we have at salvation. Now, in the middle of this passage, he uses a different word for knowledge that seems to be the kind of knowledge that grows when Peter uses it that way. And so he says, uh, there's at verse verse 5, at the end of verse 5, to your virtue add knowledge, and to knowledge self-control. So there's this knowledge that continues to grow. We grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as we live as Christians. Um, But at salvation, the divine nature grants to us all things that pertain, pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. We know Him. He knows us. We now are His. Uh, and so uh, in this process of this uh, being born again, of, of the Lord working in our life, we receive the gift of faith in verse 1. You see, we've obtained a faith of equal standing as with Peter said. Peter says, your faith is equal to the faith of the apostles. We've been given the gift of faith. We've been given this uh, these everything that pertains to life and godliness, and we've been given precious and magnificent promises in verse 4. What does it mean that we have everything that pertains to life and godliness? I mean, that's a pretty full statement. What, what, what does that say to us? We have everything that pertains to life and godliness. Okay, God is sufficient. The Holy Spirit, we can't live godly lives without the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is sufficient to enable us to do whatever it is that God calls us to do. The Lord Jesus is sufficient in that His sacrifice covers it all. The sufficiency, but we now have this uh, everything that pertains to life and godliness in that we can live a godly life. We can live in a godly way. Uh, unless your righteousness, Jesus sets a high standard for a godly life, right? What does he tell the Pharisees? In this, unless your godliness, or the disciple, the, the people he's preaching to, unless your godliness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. Have you got past the Pharisees? Is your godliness... When Jesus would say that to the crowds, there's no higher standard, humanly speaking, that they can imagine. The Pharisees were the uh, godly ones. They were the... uh, picture, or at least they were supposed to be, the picture of the godliest of the godly. And so he says, now your righteousness has to exceed that. And they hear that. We think of how bad the Pharisees are. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. But the people would have, in one sense, revered the Pharisees. They were the Hasidim. They were the holy ones of the Jewish faith. So, Jesus says, 
there's my standard. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, how could anybody possibly be saved then? Isn't that what they ask? I mean, they ask that. And Jesus says, well, with man it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Uh, but he said even the Pharisees had to go farther. What did he say to Nicodemus? <laughs> and you got, you got to be born again, Nick. You come, you come and ask me about this stuff. And he said, look, you can't even see the kingdom, much less enter the kingdom, unless you're first born again. Nicodemus, who was a ruler, a teacher, a Pharisee, uh, highest, <laughs> the highest of the high. Uh, another teacher of the law, when Jesus uh, talked to him about the law, he said, you're right. You know, you're right. What you say is exactly right, Jesus. He said, look, you're close to the kingdom. You're not there yet, but you're close. Uh, you're not far from the kingdom of God. So the best they could do is not enough. We know that. I know this. Remember, Peter's reminding. So we're just reminding, right? I'm about as old as Peter is. The Lord hadn't told me when it's over for me, but I'm, you know, I'm in, a, I'm in the age of reminding. My brain is not as supple as you younger folks. So I'm just reminding you of what I know uh, from the past, right? So anyway, um, he didn't set a more demanding code. Jesus has not come to raise the bar, if you will, where a few who would really uh, commit themselves diligently to Jesus where they could make it. Uh, no, what he did... I like what one of the commentators said, Jesus didn't come to raise the bar that only a few could achieve, but he redefined what it meant to be a disciple. Those who recognize Jesus as the lawgiver come to him not on the basis of their obedience. Right? We come to him in our imperfection and in our weakness. We don't come to him for his approval. We come to him for forgiveness. The Pharisees looked to God to approve their life. They adjusted the law to where they could keep it. Jesus set the bar higher than anybody can make. And the disciple of Christ comes to him knowing you can't gain God's approval and looks to Christ for forgiveness. So he sets the high standard, but he also provides the means to attain the high standard. He grants to us everything that pertains to life and godliness in his grace, in his generosity, in his kindness. He gives us everything we need to live a godly life. We talked about it. the gospel is sufficient. Christ is sufficient. The gospel is sufficient to meet God's demands. Christ is sufficient to uh, remove every obstacle that, for us to have a relationship with God. And then the Spirit of God, again, enables us 
Uh, Romans 8, 3, and 4. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So we got the Father who sent his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. God's work is always Father, Son, and Spirit. One God, three roles, three purposes, working in uh, different fashions. But the indwelling Spirit enables us And we gain access to this resource through the knowledge of God and our uh, and of Jesus our Lord, he says there in verse two and three, bestowed on every believer when they're converted. This knowledge, a calling. Uh, verse four, by which he is granted to us precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Verse 3, he's called us to his, to his own glory and to his own excellence. Excellence. Uh, the calling that happens that brings us to Christ and then has implications for the rest of our life. So the power of Christ and then the promises, uh, yeah, we can look at verse the exceeding or precious and uh, New American says magnificent promises. What is it? Uh, we have very great, I think, in the ESV, very great promises. Uh, Jesus has no blemishes. So knowing him is precious, worthy as the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Uh, and then, again, in Peter's context, he's about to cross the river, uh, Bunyan's River, to the celestial city. Uh, hmm. What could be more precious when you're at that place? All you have is the promises of God, Right? When you know that's coming, when you know you're at the end, it's the promises of God. They become really prayer. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, uh, I will fear no evil. You're with me. You're rod and your staff. They comfort me. And we become partakers of the divine nature. Um, what does that mean? Here's... here's uh, you are as much the incarnation of God as Jesus Christ was. Every man who has been born again is an incarnation. Right? No. No. <laughs> That's Kenneth Hagin. <laughs> Paul Crouch. Here you go. You know him. Anyone indwelt by the Spirit is as much the Son of God as Jesus himself. No, that's not what this passage means. Um, in fact, the early church, 
Some of the early church fathers believed it. Some of the late church fathers believed it. They were some fathers for some. Uh, But we're creatures. We're creatures now. We'll be creatures forever. Uh, We'll be glorified, but we'll still be creatures. Indwelt by the Spirit, yes. We partake of the Spirit. We don't become divine, but we partake of the presence of God in our life, in our souls. We are not little gods. And the cults teach that. Um, God has one incarnate Son, and those, and though we're indwelt by His Spirit, by His grace we're able to partake of His presence, let us not ever deceive ourselves into thinking we are divine. It's the grace of God that keeps us from deity. I like that. It's the grace of God that keeps us from deity. Um, we're going to stop right there because we've got to go into verse 5 and this sanctifying uh, characteristics that are going to be present in the life of the faithful believers. you have any questions, any comments? Yeah. I I well, I don't know, James, you know. I, I, uh I guess it depends on when it was. I I'm not going to I'm not going to you, you got to figure that out and you got to be careful if you put that on everybody to know that. Uh, I, I think, I, I mean, I think if you're going to separate that out, you've got to know when you're made alive, which is regeneration. But it's a mystery work of God. But you do have to repent and put your faith in Christ. You have to be born, born again in a moment of time. What? Just so under for the next hour. Oh, well, good. <laughs> Teach those children. Teach. Teach, teach the children well. Yes, Lily. Yeah. I was listening to a podcast from Costi Hen about uh, Mormon turning into Christianity, converting into Christianity, and one of his things was about how um, when he was a Mormon, uh, when he would converse with a, a Christian, that it was very. Um, not loving, very mm-hmm. harsh. The words were, you know, very rude. So um, that's a big take from that is that we need to make sure that we are loving. I have a bad error on that with my own parents, you know, <laughs> talking with them. And it's like, yeah, you're wrong. But it's like, wait, hold on. That's not loving. <laughs> yes. Yes. You want to win them. I'm going to close with a Puritan prayer that I read this morning that's so good. Glorious God, I bless you that I know you. I once lived in the world, but was ignorant of its creator, was a partaker of your providences, but knew not the provider, was blind while enjoying the sunlight, deaf to all things spiritual with voices all around me. 
I understood many things, but had no knowledge of your ways. I saw the world, but did not see Jesus only. Oh, happy day, when in your love's sovereignty, you did look on me and call me by grace. Then did the dead heart beat, begin to beat, the darkened eye glimmer with light, the dull ear catch the echo. I turned to thee and found thee, a God ready to hear, willing to save. Then I did I find my heart at enmity to you, vexing your spirit. Then did I fall at your feet and hear you thunder. The soul that sins, it must die. But when grace made me to know you and admire a God who hated sin, your terrible justice held my will submissive. My thoughts were then as knives cutting my head. Then did you come to me in silken robes of love, and I saw your son dying that I might live. And in that death I found my all. My soul does sing at the remembrance of that peace. The gospel trumpet brought a sound unknown to me before that reached my heart. And I lived, never to lose my hold on Christ or his hold on me. Grant that I may always weep to the praise of mercy found. And tell to others as long as I live that you are a sin-pardoning God taking up the blasphemer and the ungodly and washing them from their deepest stain. Oh, Father, may we never lose the wonder of our salvation. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.